In the summer of 2019, the health insurer Cigna con conducted a study of 10,000 American workers to measure rates of social isolation and loneliness using an 80-item questionnaire. Now, studies, of course, are limited by design and can have sampling errors. But among those surveyed, 60% reported feeling lonely much of the time. 60%. And this was pre-COVID. Either there were a lot of lonely hearts in the survey sample, or something is going on in our society at large. Lots of us feel lonelier than ever, and COVID has only hurt, it, hurt things. For over a year, we've been unable to travel as we'd like, go out as we'd like, visit family or friends as we'd like. Our ways of coping have tended up to make us more isolated, more insular. Judging by the sales at the municipal stores, folks are drinking more. Streaming services have boomed, and if we're isolated from our own social circles, you can imagine how threadbare relationships with those across social circles have become, especially relationships we think uh, with those we think of as being in need. Today, Jesus warns us about the collapse of relationships, not just with those in need, but all around, with those of one's own social circle, with one's own family of faith, and with God, who is doing a new thing. The story is not just a warning, though. It's a summons. It's a call. Get on board with the new thing God is doing. So what's going on? We have a rich man who has lavish banquets every single day. Every single day. You can imagine going out to eat every day, but man, it would get tiring after a while. It would just be, I don't think my, my tummy could handle it. But he eats, he eats richly every single day. And then there's a destitute man named Lazarus laid at his gate, whose only friends are the dogs, which were anything but pets in those days. They were the farthest thing from cute and cuddly. So both men die. The rich man goes, is in Hades, while Lazarus has been carried to Abraham's side, just as he was carried to that gate in the first place. However, it is not the ultimate locations of Lazarus and the rich man that interest me as much as the conversation that the rich man has with Abraham. The rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus to cool my tongue. Abraham refuses, saying that even if Lazarus wanted to go over, he could not cross the great chasm fixed between them. The rich man, not to be deterred, asks Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his five brothers. It's like something out of Christmas Carol, a Christmas Carol that, that the rich man wants. Someone to come from the dead to warn them before it's too late. Abraham also refuses this, saying it would be pointless to send someone from the dead who doesn't listen to Moses and the prophets. So what's going on with the rich man? What's happening with him? It's clear that he doesn't see Lazarus as a person with human dignity in his own right. 
He certainly doesn't see him as a brother in faith. The hierarchies and divisions that characterize life on earth are fixed in the rich man's mind, even after death. Even after their positions are reversed, the rich man sees Lazarus as nothing more than a potential ser servant, as an object, someone who could help him, who could help his brothers. This is just how the rich man treated his own servants in life. Remember that he had a lavish banquet every single day. You can't do that without denying your workers Sabbath rest. Someone has to prepare the meal. Even though he recognizes Abraham as his father, he does not recognize his fellow human beings as brothers and sisters. They're beneath him. He doesn't even seem to care about his own blood brothers until he himself is in the fire. Other people are just tools to get what he wants. It's quite a chasm the rich man has created. He denied the humanity of others so much it turns out he's denied his own. His own personhood has been reduced to mere appetites. He doesn't even have a name in the story. He's only known by what he had. So like all parables, this should be disturbing. Many of us probably see the parable through the rich man's eyes. The liturgy encouraged that, certainly, by having us read the rich man's parts, right? And plus, this is in the context of the original parable. Jesus' original audience here are Pharisees, whom Luke tells us were lovers of money. But there's more than one set of eyes in this parable. There's Abraham, and then there's Lazarus. How does Lazarus see what's going on. For Abraham's part, he may see the rich man as a poor, self-condemned soul who even in death refuses to change his mind and heart about himself, about Lazarus, about his own family. But Lazarus, imagine things from Lazarus's point of view. Lazarus is totally passive in this story. He was carried to the rich man's gate. The dogs lick his sores. He is carried to Abraham's side. He is not a bootstrap puller. He has no bootstraps to pull on. The only thing Lazarus actively does is long for the crumbs from the rich man's table. It's pretty sad. Everything about him, about Lazarus, is offensive to classic American sensibilities about hard work and self-sufficiency. And yet, his humanity is so much more than what he can do or not do. His identity is child of God, child of Abraham. Without any deserving on his part, Without anything he does, he is comforted. He's recognized. He is named. Those in Lazarus's place would see this as good news beyond their wildest dreams. Lazarus is a part of God's great reversal, a reversal that began way back at the beginning 
when God chose an elderly couple, Abraham and Sarah, to be the family of the promise. Luke emphasizes this over and over again. Right away, Luke 1, God chooses another elderly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, to be the parents to John the Baptist. God chooses a young girl to give birth to the Messiah. Jesus chooses 12 ordinary men to be apostles. Jesus preaches this reversal even further, makes it more plain, no pun intended, in his Sermon on the Plain, when he tells us that the poor are blessed. And we see this great reversal enacted in Jesus' own life when he, the Lord of all, goes to the cross to redeem his people. That doesn't mean that those who aren't wealthy and powerful can't be a part of the great reversal. They are in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus does heal a powerful centurion servant back in chapter 7. We heard about that about a month or so ago. And Jesus also declares about the centurion that he hadn't seen such faith even in Israel. However, what distinguishes the centurion and those on board with what's going on? What distinguishes him is his humility and love. Not just for his servant, not just for his own, but for the community around him. Even some Jewish elders who ought to have had every reason to hate him advocate on his behalf to Jesus. The good news for us who might be in the rich man's shoes is simply this. Jesus invites us to get on board. Jesus invites us to be a part of what God is doing, part of this great reversal in God's kingdom. And not just with resources, but more importantly with humanity, with identity, where everyone like Lazarus is worthy of dignity, worthy of love, worthy of a name. As it turns out, we're all sisters and brothers in the kingdom of God. We're all connected. We're all children of Abraham, grafted onto the family tree of God by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the one who, by the way, comes back from the dead to bring us back together in our common humanity, in mutual love for God and for each other, in one family of faith. So let's get on board, not only with what Jesus has done, but with what he is currently doing in you and in me, in our congregation, in our community, in our world. Jesus is working. Let's be part of it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to value what you value. Help us to see our common humanity and help us get on board with your work in the world. Amen.